0: by your righteousness, listen closely to me, rescue me quickly, be a rock of refuge for me, a mountain fortress to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress, you lead and guide me because of your name, you will free me from the net that is secretly set for me, for you are my refuge into your hand I entrust my spirit you redeem me Lord God of truth how great is your goodness that you've stored up for those who fear you and accomplished in the sight of everyone for those who take refuge in you you hide them in the protection of your presence You conceal them in a shelter from the schemes of men, from quarrelsome tongues. May the Lord be praised, for he has wonderfully shown his faithful love to me in a city under siege. In my alarm I had said, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the sound of my pleading when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord all you, his faithful ones. The Lord protects the loyal. Be strong and courageous, all of you who put your hope in the Lord. And with our hope in the Lord, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10, which will be our key focus verse. And that's Ephesians 1.10. There's every reason in the world to focus on this particular verse. Because it is the ground and foundation of everything that Paul the Apostle wrote. I didn't want to neglect to mention, by the way, Jeff Stewart, Pastor Stewart, your message this week was remarkable on the Transfiguration Wednesday. You got another one coming? Good, because you had two and a half years to prepare for (laughs) it. In studying the order of the epistles of Paul, Ephesians usually, traditionally, is shown to be one of the last, but it's actually one of the very first, and in fact, probably the first, with the exception of Thessalonians, which was written to meet an occasion when people were kind of agitated by some false news that they had been uh, left behind. So Ephesians is what I call Paul's primal epistle. It's his original primal epistle. Everything that he wrote from then on has to be seen in the light of this epistle. Like no other, it's written to a group of believers, probably first in Laodicea, who had the gospel proclaimed to them and were transferred into the kingdom of God and didn't know what hit them because there was no human movement toward God, but just a God movement toward them that swept them up into his grace and kindness and salvation, gloriously covering them with his spirit, entering them into his presence. And they kind of wanted to know just what happened. (laughs) Paul told them. Ephesians is Paul telling us what happened when god confronts us and when he saves us so paul wrote of universal recapitulation and its the greek phrase is very revealing it's ana sastai tapanta The recapitulation, the gathering up and gathering in of everything, visible and invisible, heavenly and earthly, into Christ, en Christo, in Christ. And this is the fundamental Pauline doctrine. It's a doctrine that we entertain and understand and master first before we get into the doctrine of justification which again was a doctrine that Paul had to address because of an occasion in Rome of another false teaching that had been circulating, justification by the works of the law. So justification isn't Paul's prime doctrine, but recapitulation universally is Paul's fundamental doctrine. Some call it a metaphysic because metaphysics is understood as the total knowledge that we can't know by ourselves or we can't perceive outside of transcending ourselves, in this case by faith. And so nothing is more important than that phrase in Ephesians 1.10, the gathering up of all things in Christ Christ. That is the mystery of God's will, as Ephesians 1.9 puts it. And it's toward that end that everything is directed in divine providence, even down to what is known as meticulous providence, every little thing that happens, every minute thing that occurs. I turn left instead of right. I walk this way instead of that way. This happened to me, that happened to us. This happened to our nation, etc. Everything in Ephesians one eleven, according to the counsel of him who willed that great intention. The reason I'm mentioning this is because we're still on redemption denoting an end. Redemption denotes an end. It denotes an end that's penultimate, which is you, the New Testament community, the new covenant community. But it also denotes an end that is ultimate and that is the universal recapitulation or gathering up of all things under the head called Christ. And what that means, what that means if we understand it, what that does to us if we understand it is it begins to master us by the love of Christ. The love of Christ begins to control us. It masters us, not love just for those whom we know and whom we see daily, who are in our periphery, our family, our immediate associates, but all people, including our enemies, including those who despitefully use us, including those who persecute us, and we're going to see this unfold. This is the fundamental doctrine, pantone Anachephaleosis is the way that it was spelled by Lonergan. He just simply anglicized the words a little bit and rearranged them. Panton anakhaliosis. Written it so many times I can actually remember it. Panton ankephaleosis. And of course that goes into en Christo in Christ. What's God's ultimate will? What is the end denoted by his plan of redemption? What is his great intention, as Isaiah 9.5 put it? It is to sum up everything, gather all things under the headship, kafale, of Jesus Christ, so that he comprises all things. And then, as a result of that, what happens? God is all in all. And that's the ultimate end denoted by redemption. So this is the fundamental Pauline doctrine. This is what Lonergan deemed to be. And I agree with him, not just off the bat. I agree with him after studying for many, many years and reflecting on this. Bernard Lonergan deemed to be the necessary primal truth for the interpretation of Paul. In fact, his precise words that hit me like a locomotive... In reading his 25th volume of theology, his precise words, he said, a metaphysic is the necessary key to the interpretation of St. Paul. Upon study and reflection, now that metaphysic he's talking about is precisely the Panton anacephaliosis in Christo. That's the key to interpreting all of Paul. That's why Paul never mentions hell, incidentally, in any of his 13 epistles that are attributed to him. Not once. He mentions Hades in connection with death as a synonym with death as being done and finished and losing its sting. It's, this is the recapitulation of all things. And again, all of Paul's writings, all of his epistles... Even when he seems to be speaking harshly, all of his epistles have to be interpreted in the light of this pantone anacephaliosis, which happens to be the end denoted by redemption. So if it's true that Ephesians is his primal, original epistle, not chronologically, but in essence and in truth and in reality, and I suspect very much that it is, Ephesians is Paul's most articulate of his inspired doctrine of this end denoted by redemption. Now, in the Latin, and I just want to lay some tracks here because in the Latin, something really hit me in the Latin Vulgate, and I don't usually advert to the Latin translation because it's pretty usually inferior. But this... Word in the Latin is instarare. Instare and then it says omnia, which of course means all, and then in Christo. Similar to Greek a little bit. Instarare, omnia, and Christo. So his idea of the recapitulation, or the Latin idea, instarere, captures This root word, S-T-A-U, which comes all the way back, goes all the way back, even earlier than Greek, it becomes a root for the word staros, which is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, cross, the cross. So everything becomes gathered up in Christ only through the cross, only through Jesus Christ and him crucified. So in this little phrase, panton anacapheleosis and Christo in the Greek, he captures everything that he wants to say from then on because he said to the Corinthians, after trying another approach in Athens to philosophically minded people, he said, I determined when I got to you guys not to know anything among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Crucified. Staurao. S T A U, that root is there again. And so that really struck my eye in the sense that in this very primal phrase that captures everything Paul wanted to say, we have Jesus Christ, but not only Jesus Christ, but hidden in that word, him crucified, him having been crucified. But him having been raised from the dead, having been exalted, having been enthroned at the right hand of the Father where he is now such a great archpriest for us and all that that means. We don't just see Jesus moving around Nazareth, preaching in Capernaum, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, preaching, preaching. We see him crowned with glory and honor, comprising all things. That's what it means to see Jesus. Although it's, of course, extraordinarily important for us to see him in the Gospels as he's portrayed there. So, everything has to be interpreted in the light of this one thing. If this is indeed true and that this is the metaphysic that is necessary for the interpretation of St. Paul, and I think it can be demonstrated clearly, then everything that ever flowed from Paul's pen when he wrote, or from his mouth when he spoke to an ammunensis or a secretary to write his epistles, everything that ever came from him must be interpreted in this light. And if indeed this is the case... Paul is right in line with all the prophets without exception in whom God spoke univocally, that is with one voice, not equivocally but univocally, with one voice all the prophets from time immemorial, from the time when prophets began to be and to speak. Everyone in that whole line of prophets spoke of one thing and that's apokatastasis pantone, which is a synonym for anakephaliosis pantone. Acts 3.21. All the prophets from time immemorial were the voice piece or the mouthpiece for the voice of God, speaking of the restoration of all things, the universal restoration. So why don't megachurches talk about this with all of their pageantry Why don't churches speak of this? Why don't preachers on TV speak of this while they proclaim our future being in Matthew 24? Why? What are we missing if we miss that? Just everything. If that's not the focal point and the beginning point, then everything is askew, everything is off, everything is wrong, or at least not entirely right. So that's how important this is. And lately, especially, I like to think of every message may be my last message. So if this were my last message, this is what I'd be saying. If I knew this was my last message, this is what I'd be saying. So it's notable that this oft-used phrase in this connection, is en Christo. Sometimes it's en to Christo, in the Christ. Sometimes it's en Christu Jesu, in Christ Jesus. You find it in Ephesians 1:1,27, 1, 1, 2.13, 2, 3.11, 3.21, Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, 2.5, Sometimes it's simply en Christo, as in Ephesians 1, 3, 2, 6, 3, 6, 4, 5, 6, 5, and dozens of other examples, probably up into the almost 100 at least, in all of Paul's epistles, throughout all of them. Nothing is more comforting to know than that we are in Christ Jesus and that God intends, according to the mystery of his will, his intention, his gracious and kind intention, incidentally, to sum up all things and all beings in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, past, present, and future, in Christo. We're speaking, therefore, of the recapitulation of all things in Christ because it articulates the ultimate end denoted by redemption, which has been our subject since we've been back together here in, uh, since August 14th. And when all things are gathered up in Christ, then God will be all in all, and this is the ultimate end denoted by the word redemption. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight is as far out as it gets, as ultimate as it gets. It's within Paul's writings. This universal mystery of God's will was understood by theologians in the patristic era, the early centuries of the church, especially in the East, not so much in the West, where Augustine tripped over the word eternitas and thought that it always meant endless And we'll be dealing with another subject called avaternity, which is really going to be important to our understanding of what's going on right now. But this was understood. J.N.D. Kelly, of all people, my favorite... He doesn't call himself an atheist anymore. He calls himself a naturalist. My favorite naturalist brain surgeon cousin, Greg, gave me this book. And it's one of the best books on the subject and uh, that's God's providential reversal. J.N.D. Kelly, he wrote about early Christian doctrines. And this is what he said. Although influenced by apologists, Irenaeus owed much more to the direct impact of St. Paul and St. John. I'm with Irenaeus on that. Those two guys kind of impacted me too. In Christology, his approach was conditioned negatively by his opposition to Gnosticism and docetism positively by his own tremendous vision of Christ as the second Adam who summed up in himself listen carefully to this who summed up in himself the whole sequence of mankind including the first Adam thereby sanctifying it and inaugurating a new redeemed race of men And, of course, he meant men and women. And in that same book, thanks, Dr. Gregg, running through almost all the patristic attempts to explain redemption, he says, there is one grand theme which, we suggest, provides the clue to the Father's understanding of the work of Christ. This is none other than the ancient idea of recapitulation, which Irenaeus derived from St. Paul and which envisages Christ as the representative of the entire race. This is what was understood by those people who immediately followed Paul in the generations thereafter, especially the Church of the East. The 20th century theologian Sergius Bulgakov, and I heard David Bentley Hart interviewed about him lately, and called him Bulgakov. So there's my pronunciation again. Sergius Bulgakov, who he called heroic. He demonstrates a strong understanding of this this metaphysic, And he uses the language of metaphysics, and he wrote this. This is Bulgakov, who wrote in the 20th century. He said, empirically, Christ is one of many in historical mankind. And that's exactly right. Philippians 2.7, he became in the likeness of human persons, even though, of course, he was a divine and human person. He was in the likeness of merely human persons. But he's one of many in historical mankind empirically, but in reality, he contains... All of historical mankind in his humanity. Now, immediately when I think of that, I go, okay, then if he contained all of humanity in himself, then what happened when he died? All died. What happened when he rose? All rose. All. So the new covenant community isn't all the new humanity. It's a forecast of the universal new humanity. But let's go on. Bulgakov goes on to say, that which is revealed in history in chronological succession is conjoined in him in metaphysical unity. All humanity without any exception... And I love this guy. I love this. I like to meet him. He looks, incidentally, pictures of him. He looks like an MMA fighter. He looks like a guy that could definitely try to beat me up. <laughs> then he says, the humanity of the past and of the present and of the future. So he says, all humanity without any exception is contained in him. People that are shocked at that may be even more shocked to be told that he became a curse for us and that he became sin for us. But he goes on to say the humanity of the past and of the present and of the future, all of human nature, is metaphysically integrated in his nature, and all the human persons called to being find themselves in their authenticity in the person of Christ. Who we are in our authenticity is who we are in Christ, only to be magnified and revealed when we have the change of our somatic status, the change of body. So this is how I have these conversations with these guys. I'd say, Sergius, first let's arm wrestle, and after I defeat you, let's talk a little more. No, I wouldn't. This goes a long way to explain what is meant in Ephesians 1.10, again, by the phrase, the fullness of times. In the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather all up in himself. Why? In the fullness of times. Because that means that the gathering up of all the sequences of time into a unity or a kind of simultaneity where all times become simultaneous times. All human beings, whenever they lived in whatever epoch and era they lived in, become contemporaries. That's only possible through resurrection, but that's what happens. that's when i i like to think of it as eric the red the famous viking embracing shaka zulu of the zulus the king of the zulus embracing resurrected and every kind of person in every kind of epic in every person we've read about in every person we've not read about because the vast majority of us don't make the history books And everybody but four made Mount Rushmore. Nobody but four, rather, made Mount Rushmore. Nobody. God's got a different Mount Rushmore, though, I think. And so, all human persons without any exception are contained in him. Does that offend you? This is metaphysically true, and it's really true, really true. This includes all human persons, not only at all times and epochs, but all human persons, whether good or bad, good or bad, gathered and brought to the wedding banquet of the Lamb. Revelation 19:9. Compared with Isaiah 25, 6 through 9, where death is dead. As Matthew 5, 45 says, Your Father in heaven. You should get to know him. You know why? He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. As the host of the wedding banquet says in Jesus' parable, of the wedding banquet in Matthew 22. Therefore, the host says to his couriers, go to where the roads exit the city and invite everyone you find to the banquet. So those slaves went out on the roads and gathered everyone they found, both evil and good. Everybody without exception, both evil and good. The wedding banquet was filled with guests. How was it filled with guests? They gathered everybody in. All humanity without any exception is contained in Christ. As we've noticed before, the Most High is kind. Christos, kind. To the ungrateful and the evil. What wins a lot of ungrateful and evil people is astonishingly and surprisingly gracious acts done toward them by people they hate. Or by people they think should avenge themselves on them. The Most High is kind to the grateful and the evil. You know where that was proven? On the cross. This ultimately happened as kindness was shown to the crucifiers of Christ. In the reconciliation of the world in Christ. That's where God proved, the Most High proved that he's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. kindness of the most high is ultimately salvific and universally so by the grace of our lord jesus christ acts 15:11. we conclude peter said at a very important council in jerusalem that they the gentiles will be saved just like we are by the grace of our lord jesus christ Romans 5.15, the grace of the one man, the one new Adam. 2 Corinthians 8.9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, became poor for us, that we might be made wealthy through his self-chosen poverty. Ephesians 2.8, by grace you have been saved, are saved, and will be saved into the eternal state. Through faithfulness that is not yours, but Jesus Christ's faithful obedience to the death of the cross. Not of works, lest any person should boast. His grace is to all. Revelation twenty two twenty one, the last verse in the Bible. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be to all. Pantone, all. Pantone, anacephaliosis. So I've referred once again to the Latin translation of Ephesians 1.10, not only because it says in Christo, because of the word, but also starari very important. It's remarkable because instareri contains a root common to the Greek. S-T-A-U, which belongs to the noun staros for cross, John 19, 17, 1919, 1925, 1931, 1 Corinthians 1, 17. you'll see all these in print, 1 Corinthians 1, 17 and 18, Galatians 6, 14, Ephesians 2:16, 16, Philippians 2, 8, Colossians 1, 20, the one reference to the word cross, Hebrews 12, 2, and also to the verb stauro, staurao, S-T-A-U-R-O-O, which means to crucify in Matthew 27, 38, 28, 5, Luke twenty-four, twenty; John nineteen, fifteen; Acts 2, 36, 1 Corinthians 2, 2, 2, Corinthians thirteen, four; Galatians 3, 1, 5, 24, 6, 14, Revelation eleven, eight. And also another one Sustarao crucified with like we were, crucified with or to crucify together, Matthew twenty seven forty four, fifteen thirty two, nineteen thirty two, Romans six six, Galatians two twenty. And so, indeed, the Latin construction reveals that in the very fundamental metaphysic, or what I would say a metaphysic is a foundational and all-encompassing doctrine, which is only understandable to human beings as they transcend themselves in faith. Faith is the transcendent, uh, transcendence of ourselves. It's a perceptiveness that isn't available to our reason Our empiricism, our sight, our positivism, all the things that we view, human observation, scientism, etc. Faith is a transcendence of ourselves, and it's a gift from God. And so, this thing itself, this total recapitulation, this universal recapitulation is ultimately only understandable as we transcend ourselves in faith. In Paul's writings, there is Jesus Christ and him crucified, which as Paul declared in 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, all that he determined to know among the Corinthian saints and evidently if you read the rest of his epistles everywhere else, that's all he wanted to articulate. Again, Paul wrote, foundationally of universal recapitulation. In close proximity, if you look back on Ephesians 1.7, notice how closely approximate this universal recapitulation is to the redemption. That's our subject, the redemption, apolutrosis, that is, by the blood of Christ, The word of God is like a sharp sword, sharper than any two-edged sword. Picture along the length of the sword a blood groove, where the blood runs in a groove. And I picture the word of God in my own particular kind of vision as the sword, but I also picture a blood groove, and blood is running through the whole groove. In other words, the doctrine of the blood of the saving Lamb of God runs throughout the Word of God. And we have it again here in Ephesians 1 7. So notice the close proximity of this word, universal recapitulation, with the redemption that is by the blood of Christ in Ephesians 1 7, which goes back to the price that was paid to secure that redemption, also part of Thesis 15 of Lonergan. Apollutrosis, through his blood. The forgiveness of trespasses. I like what Jeremiah said in a metaphorical way. In Jeremiah 48, 5, he said, Cursed is the, are those who do the work of the Lord deceitfully. But then he says, Cursed is the shepherd whose sword does not draw blood. And so... After every time I preach, I have to look at the sword of the word that I've wielded and see if there's blood running in the blood group. If there isn't, I haven't done it right. That doesn't mean I've hurt everybody and stabbed everybody. Obviously, it's a metaphor. That it means that we have emphasized the redemption that is in Christ Jesus in one way or another. Apollutrosis. And so, the forgiveness of trespasses piggybacks on that. We have redemption by his blood, the forgiveness of sins, that kind of piggybacks on the redemption. And the forgiveness of sins, lo and behold, is a prime factor of the new covenant, which we're going to look at in Hebrews 8, 8 through 12, which Quotes in its totality, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. So what are we doing? And what do you think we've been doing since we've been back here? Well, among other things, we're doing an exegesis of Hebrews 8, though you probably don't know it. And you might not have been conscious of it yet. I want to do this so thoroughly that all I have to do on Hebrews 8 is just read it straight through. That's it. And you'll say, oh yeah, we get that now because we've been looking at that redemption and that new covenant community as the penultimate end of that redemption. Yeah, we get it. So, tes apolutrosios tes en cristo. That's another phrase. Again, it'll be in print. Romans 3.24, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You have been justified by grace not only in Romans 3.24, but Titus 3.7, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's what we're talking about, a redemption that is by the blood of Christ, his atoning death, his sacrificial death as the Lamb of God and the way he takes away the sin of the world. This redemption ultimately includes the redemption of the human body from corruption. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 55. Also Ephesians 4, 30. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption, which is the redemption of your body. In Romans 8, Philippians 3, 20. We are waiting for a deliverer to come from heaven. And that's an analogy to when people expected Caesar was called Soter, Savior, called Kurios, Lord, called Theos, God, Savior, God, Deliverer. When Caesar came to visit your home in a great procession, he also conferred benefits on you, which were mostly just spoken, named, nominal benefits, kind of like what politicians do today. Somebody would say, the highest politician in the world is coming Today, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to go to church and preach the word. I'm not much on celebrity ship lately, and except for the celebrity ship of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm only interested in his celebrity. In a 10,000 degrees separate from that, I'm interested in Aaron Judge hitting 62 home runs and waiting patiently for it. And even saying a word or two that don't belong in the pulpit when he strikes out or is walked by a cowardly pitcher from the Baltimore Orioles or other teams. Now, but that's way, that's, way, that's 10,000 degrees away. That's way back. I happen to be old enough to remember sitting in right field in the old Yankee stadium and watching my favorite player, number nine, Roger Maris, And I think I stared at him the whole time because he was my favorite. Mickey Mantle was the good guy, and Maris was the bad kid, and I was all for the bad kid. And that was the year that he hit, 61. So it's so charming to see his son sitting in the stands, kind of rooting and kind of not rooting for Aaron Judge, who also is a remarkable athlete and a wonderful born-again Christian and brother in Christ also. So that's kind of fun to watch. But as he will tell you, there's nothing like the celebrity ship of Jesus Christ. So 9 and 99. Anyways, I said that just to let everything else sink in so far. Aeon, aeonion lutrosen. When eternal, aeonion is used when it's talking about something God is or something God does, that means forever. When it's about something like... Purification, that can be instant or momentary. A lot of the so-called universalists of our time say that, yeah, well, there's not a hell, but we're going to have to go through this fiery purification for age after age after age, and then we'll finally be ready to meet the Lord, and I call that not right. I don't believe in purgatory or in purgatory redux by the current so-called so-called universalists and so redemption denoting an end includes redemption of the body it's part of the liberation of all creation and that's why it says that all creation is groaning and so are we the one thing that links us up with the rest of creation is groaning Sitting in a deer stand on a windy day and you can hear the trees creaking under you and you can feel a little bit of a sway and it's creaking, it's nature groaning, creation is groaning. It's the wind, the hurricanes, nature screaming for deliverance. And of course we pray for those that were in the swathe of that. And are hopefully generous toward their plight. All of creation is groaning. And Paul said, and so do we. Not only that, though, the Holy Spirit groans within us. Making intercession. God groans. In us. We groan. Creation groans. You see the longing in the eyes of of a cow or a horse or a llama to be fed. You see the longing in their eyes. You see this similar life in all of animal kind, in almost a life that we share with animal kind, and there's a groaning. There's a lack of something. There is a desire for something. And they groan for the deliberation that's in Christ Jesus, though they don't know it we groan for it and we know it we know what we're groaning for and so redemption ultimately is the radical alteration of the human and the cosmic condition and that another word for that is eternal redemption in hebrews 9:12 again which he secured not by the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and rams, but by his own blood. We've already considered redemption as denoting both a penultimate end and an ultimate end. And I first saw this when I was reading Robert M. Duran's last book. Now, I read a lot of books, but it's weird because while I read these books, my life is also going through changes. My life is going through things that reverberate and resonate to me while I'm reading. So it's not just reading, it's weird. It's a conversation with God, it's a conversation with my brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ who wrote. But reading Robert Duran's last book called The Redemption of History is when I first got a hold of this idea of penultimate end and an ultimate end. It's the last volume in his series entitled The Trinity in History, In fact, near the close of that volume, Duran, who worked through the 15th thesis of Lonergan himself in a masterful way, wrote this. And imagine, I don't know if you can imagine my delight in reading this because I've chosen Hebrews to hunker down on for an indefinite period of time. He wrote this in among his last words written, the Lord took him to be with himself January 21st, 2021 while he was still planning to write other things, he said this, there is the connection between redemption as mediation and the sacrifice of the high priest in his own blood. Here we are reliant almost entirely on the letter to the Hebrews. Where alone... The theme of the high priest receives attention. These are among the last words of one of the greatest theologians of our time. Moreover, he begins the next paragraph by saying this. The real end of Christ's sacrifice is precisely the new covenant. So imagine again my delight when I read this on the second to the last page of the very last book that Duran wrote his appeal to the letter to the Hebrews maybe I'm amazed no not maybe beyond this Duran refers to Jeremiah's rendition of the new covenant which is right where we're going next in Hebrews 8 and he deals with it in Hebrews eight eight to twelve. To top off my amazement in concluding my reading of this theological masterwork, and I even wrote the date when I finished it july twenty eighth, twenty twenty two. On the last page, his last scripture reference was to John nineteen thirty, where of course we find the marvelous word uttered by Jesus from the cross to tell us that. And as I've said before, the last two words in the book, in his last book, before the Lord took him home, are universal salvation. And he said, which I intend to deal with, he said. And then the Lord took him home. So in my note on the margin... After the Lord took him home January 21st, 2021, in my handwritten note on the bottom of page 186, I wrote, quote, guess I'll have to deal with that, close quote. So what are we doing? We're making our way back to Hebrews 8. Long trip, wasn't it? Long circle, but that's exactly what we're doing right now, making our way back to Hebrews 8, where we happen to be located in our verse-by-verse exposition of Hebrews. There we'll find our great archpriest and see the penultimate end of the redemption which he wrought by his own blood, the payment of the price, and that'll be the new covenant community. And just what that means, to have God's spirit in us, willing and doing of his own good pleasure, writing his laws upon our hearts, etc., in the very flow of the first few verses, we see the connection between our so significant a great archpriest, his ministry as intercessor, and then the new covenant and its community as the penultimate end of the redemption, which Jesus secured by means of his own blood, which is the payment of the price. So let me just hit Hebrews 8.1 before we go into our coda, C-O-D-A, which is kind of our end piece that I'm going to secure on this. Hebrews 8.1. Now the summing up of what we are saying is this. We have an archpriest. We know this archpriest now is one who embodies all humanity in himself, a representative of all, who when he died, all died. When he rose, all rose. When he was seated enthroned, he took with him human nature itself into the triune God and into the fellowship and life of the triune God including our human nature. Seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now, two weeks ago, as a kind of coda to our message, we dealt with the practical doctrine of patience. And then last week, with humility. We'll deal today with love, which is patient, humble, and kind. First things Paul says about love in his anatomy of love, love is patient, love is kind. Love is also humble. He doesn't say it outright, but he says it's not boastful, it's humble. There's two things that define human sin. The first is pride, the second is sloth. The first is evil action, the second is evil inaction. When did we not do these? When did we do these? When did we not do these? And these both sloth and pride can be overcome in us through our graced participation in Christ. So today, love, which is humble and patient and kind. Elaria Ramelli, in her thoroughly researched tome called The Christian Doctrine of Apocatastasis, She took 16 years to write it. Wrote of a 7th century Syrian mystic. Now, there's some mystics that I like, Christian mystics that aren't mystical mystics like Rasputin or Putin or any of these other mystics of our time. This guy was named Isaac of Nineveh. He was a Syrian mystic in the 7th century. And I'm bringing him today's message in the coda of today's message because the most highlighted and important of what she calls the three main pillars that support his doctrine of apocatastasis is, quote, God's infinite love, God's infinite, rather, merciful love and providence. Of this radical emphasis on love, and its survival into 20th century theology, specifically the theology of a man named Jacques-Elul. We actually read him in Bible college, and I remember him, the meaning of the city, the politics of God, the politics of man. I remember reading Jacques-Elul, but I didn't know about this about him. But we're going to go from Isaac the Syrian, or the Isaac of Nineveh, 7th century, and see how that emphasis, that radical emphasis on God's merciful love, infinite love, goes into today's theology, theology of the 20th century. She wrote this. In the history of the Christian doctrine of apocatastasis, which we know as the the universal restoration, Isaac of Nineveh is probably the patristic author who most insisted on God's boundless love as the basis for this doctrine, though he has strong antecedents in Origen and even Clement of Alexandria, who both linked apocatastasis with agape, followed by Gregory of Nyssa. The centrality of love was, of course, also transmitted by Pseudo-Dionysius, whose work became practically immediately available in Syriac, and indeed its first Syriac version is much earlier than the extant Greek. It is interesting to observe that this line was kept alive for beyond the patristic age, By way of example, and this is where I want to get the final point today, fourth gear. By way of example, let me briefly recall the French Reformed theologian Jacques Ellul, E-L-L-U-L, who lived from 1912 to 1994, who was influenced by Barth, who happens to be the guy I'm reading now. In his book called What I Believe, he proposed an eschatological universalism grounded precisely in God's love. If God is love and has so loved his creatures to give his only child for their sake, he simply cannot damn his own creatures eternally. He cannot reject them since they belong to him. This would mean God's self mutilation, which would be absurd. Interesting. From this, I derive my own thesis. Will it be thesis 90? I don't know, because there's four or five in the last few messages. But here's my, my thesis, ARK thesis. God was indeed mutilated on the cross. But this was not self-mutilation. It was the mutilation that God received from his own ungrateful creatures. In the process of reconciling them to himself. In the process of being kind to the ungrateful and the evil. The disfiguring of God in the flesh. Every eye will see him whom they have pierced. the The disfiguring of God in the flesh was incurred in the process of transfiguring his creatures into the image of his son. That's a thesis. Can we work off that? I think we can. So indeed the most high is kind. And the word is Christos. It means benevolent, beneficent, gracious. Christos is the word. C-H-R-E-S-T-O-S. C-H-R-E-S-T-O-S. Christos. The Most High is kind, Christos, benevolent, beneficent to the ungrateful and the evil. On this basis, Jesus urges his disciples, love your enemies. In this way, you will be sons of the Most High, he said. That means that you will bear a filial resemblance to the Father, a filial resemblance that is a graced imitation of Jesus, the Son of God. Thankfully, the fruit of the Spirit is this kindness, Christa tetas, this benevolence, this graciousness. So God commands of us, but then produces in us the fruit of that, of the Spirit, The fruit of the Spirit is this kindness. It is this benevolence, this graciousness. Love is kind. Love is patient. In this time in between, the alteration of our situation through reconciliation and our condition through resurrection, in this time in between, what's required of us in what masters us is the love of God in Christ Jesus. This makes us agents of God's beneficence and benevolence to all people. For this one who died died for all. And if this one who died died for all, and he did, as the single inclusive representative of all, then all died when he died. All people are therefore to be perceived by us as being in Christ, as Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, murdered by the Nazis in April of 1945, just before V.E. Day. Also, most profoundly influenced by Karl Barth, Bonhoeffer was, put it this way in his unfinished book called Ethics. In the body of Christ, Jesus Christ, God is united with humanity, said Bonhoeffer. All of humanity is accepted by God, and the world is reconciled with God. In the body of Jesus Christ, God took upon himself the sin of the whole world and bore it. There is no part of the world, be it ever forlorn and never so godless, which is not accepted by God and reconciled with God in Jesus Christ. Whoever looks on the body of Jesus Christ in in faith can no longer speak of the world as if it were separated from Christ. That's pretty profound stuff. That's what Paul Young, who wrote The Shack, said, there's my theology right in that paragraph, ethics, page 66. So if we can no longer look at the world as it's separated from Christ, then what happened to us? The love of Christ controls us. Because we've thus determined that if one died for all without exception, then all died with him. We realize how God must love the world. In fact, God loved the world in this extraordinary way. He sent his uniquely eternally begotten son, handed him over to the death of the cross, so that in this time in between, anyone who believes in him will not only not perish, because nobody does, but those who believe in him will not only not perish, but will have an experience of the life of the age to come. Even here, even now, in this world, as it is in all its corruption, all its chaos, violence, and death. God is love, and he or she that abides in God abides in love. This love, the love that God is as to his essence and being and act, is the livingness of the one who lives in God. In this agona, between the great universally salvific alterations we're not only commanded to love, we're controlled by the love of Christ. And so this commandment is not grievous at all because we're controlled by the love that we're commanded. It's not grievous, it's not difficult or ponderous, but it's supernaturally natural to our authentic selves as we're partakers of the divine nature, even here, even now, albeit in very small measure and only to slight degree. So there's the fifth gear, and I'll be quick. Yes, we're called to patience, but it's participation in the patience of Jesus. Love is patient. Yes, we're called to be humble, and our humility is a graced participation in the love of Christ, which led to his incomprehensible self-humiliation and obedience even to the extent of the death of the cross. Yes, we're called to be kind to all, even the ungrateful and the evil. And this kindness is a fruit of the Spirit who pours the love of God out in our hearts. Love is kind. God commands us to love and Jesus commands us to love one another as he loved us with a love that goes the distance. John thirteen one, He loved them to the end. His love went to the distance then he said, love like I loved you. John thirteen thirty four. Yes, he commands us to love as he loves but then he controls us with his own love in the spirit. When we love one another as he has loved us then all will know that we are his disciples, that we have learned and are learning reality as it is in Jesus. Yes, we're called to extraordinary kindness and surprising acts of benevolence and beneficence, even to the ungrateful and the evil. Love is kind. God is love. God is kind. Behold the kindness and the severity of God. Severity on the son whom he did not spare, kindness to the ungrateful and to the evil. God is kind. When we're commanded to love our enemies, we're called merely to a graced filial resemblance of our heavenly father, a filial obedience that is a graced participation in the faithful obedience of the uniquely eternally begotten son of God. Who willingly went into the far country and experienced the unspeakable wages of our sin while far from God, who is also the Son of Man who returned in exaltation to the Father with our exalted human nature, where he's now enthroned next to the Father's majesty in heaven. And we have such as him as our great archpriest. When we see Jesus, we don't just see him as the gospels see him, as wonderful as that is. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, embracing in himself all of humanity redeemed by him, all the world reconciled to him and in him, all creation comprised of him. This is the perceptiveness of faith. And this is a faith that works by love. Father, I thank you today for your kindness toward us. Certainly, all of us can point to a time when we were like those who are children of wrath, like all others were. Without Christ in this world, ungrateful, evil, inventing ways to be evil. And you were kind to us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died. God commended his love toward us in this way. And Father, I think specifically of the many who have undergone the hurricane in Florida and the Carolinas and elsewhere. And I thank you for sparing so many that we've prayed for. We pray that you will continue to Draw people to yourself through these historical adversities. Not only that that one, but the adversities that are going on throughout this world and which are coming with greater ferocity very soon. We pray that you'll demonstrate your faithfulness in preserving and sparing life and in drawing people to your Son, bringing redemptive results out of tragic circumstances. And Father, if it's not too selfish of me to say, and to say it with the Bride and the Spirit, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And I know you reply, I am coming quickly. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all for your wonderful attentiveness and apologies for the length of these messages. It's just... So good to see you. That's what it is. It's all. So stay tuned. I believe past Professor Sadar will be bringing a message soon. Also, he's got one ready. Um, so be prepared for all the wonderful speakers that have been speaking and stirring up their gifts of late. So we're grateful for it. See you next Sunday.